You're listening to Detroit Today on WDET. I'm Sandra Swoboda, and I am in studio now with Jake Neer. And it is a very special day at WDET because today is Kyle's Challenge. Donors Gary Cohn and Amy Cower founded the Kyle John Foundation, and they believe in WDET's commitment to moving our community forward. So they are challenging you to support your public radio station with a $25,000 match. And the reason we're doing this today is because today, December 11th, would have been their son Kyle's birthday. Kyle passed away at 15 from hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, a disease that Amy and Gary are working to raise awareness about through the Kyle John Foundation. Kyle cared deeply for other people, and today we are celebrating his life and the opportunity for you to improve the lives of thousands of local kids with your year-end gift. Here's a little bit more about the Kyle John Foundation. Dr. Stephen Lipschultz is a professor of pediatrics at Wayne State University Medical School and affiliated with the Children's Research Center of Michigan at Children's Hospital of Michigan. And he runs the Pediatric Cardiomyopathy Registry for the National Institutes of Health. He was approached by the Kyle John Foundation in 2013 to help develop a program that would lead to better outcomes for children with cardiomyopathy and their families. So, Dr. Lipschultz, tell us what you're doing to help families now. What we do for our families now is we really try to um, bring the centers around the United States that are involved with children with cardiomyopathy together to understand these diseases and, and, the, um, and to get to better outcomes. And along those lines, uh, we were really uh, very pleased that uh, this week in one of the most important cardiology journals in the world that we we're able to share that over the last few years by working together and with support by Kyle John Foundation and others that we've been able to actually cut the number of children with cardiomyopathy who fail medical management and either need a heart transplant or sadly um, die related to their heart problems in half. Um, and that's something that in the preceding 30 years was uh, not achievable and by really having um, focused research and support leading to new discoveries um, were leading to a better quality of life for children with cardiomyopathy and their families. Um, cutting that number in half seems incredibly significant. Why did you get to this point at this point? How did you get to uh, make such an advance in this arena so quickly? We've been recognizing that doctors who take care of children with cardiomyopathy that no one center was really able to lead to uh, an improvement in a substantial way but by having the courage to honestly define reality and saying we need to all work together and we need to share our data and we need to share our insight and we need to share our importance we were able to really understand that this is not one disease but many different causes and each cause has different outcomes and there's different risk factors and there's different ways of treating these diseases. And as we have shared that information, we've been able to um, see this uh, dramatic improvement in outcomes. And that's where the support of the Kyle John Foundation has made an important difference because it's enabled us to bring um, world experts right here to Michigan, right with our program and really help us move the mark even further in ways that wouldn't have been possible. And then with this degree of having a senior scholar supported by the Kyle John Foundation, 
um, we're able to then have these people go out um, and help um, lead to even better outcomes um, in other centers than would otherwise have been possible. Dr. Lipschultz, thank you so much for spending time uh, talking with us today and certainly for all the incredible work you're doing for these kids. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to share this uh, with you and, and your listeners, and in particular to the Kyle John Foundation. Thank you. That was Anne DeLisi talking with Dr. Stephen Lipschultz about the work the Kyle John Foundation does, working on issues of cardiomyopathy in our community. Your donation to WDET will help that work continue today. It's a match. It's today only. And once we reach that $25,000, the give back begins. So call us now, 800-959-9338, or you can do it online at WDET.org. And thank you. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. This has been a big year when it comes to immigration issues. President Trump has stopped travel from a number of Middle Eastern countries. He has continued to push for a border wall that would separate the U.S. from Mexico, and many people are facing deportation or have already been deported under an administration that is more vigorous in enforcing isolationist policies. When we talk about anti-immigration policies, we often talk about what that means for immigrants themselves. Critics of those policies have often talked about the families that are torn apart, about businesses taking advantage of or even abusing vulnerable workers, about the horrors of just trying to come to America and get a small taste of the opportunity we have here. But we don't often talk much about how those policies affect those of us who were born here. What effect do anti-immigration policies have on American citizens? Advocates of these policies say they protect us, that they keep us from having outsiders stealing our opportunities. But Reason Magazine writer Sheikha Damia says these policies actually hurt American citizens. She's been reporting on this for months, part of a series of reports that are running in Reason Magazine. She joins us now to talk about the issue. Sheikha, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Steve. Yeah. I think this is a really interesting way to look at the immigration issue. Uh, and it's, I think it has maybe sadly, more potential to appeal to some of the people who support these policies, these anti-immigration policies, by saying it's not just immigrants who you're hurting by pushing these very restrictive borders and things like that. You're hurting yourself. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, we at Reason Magazine, we are all pretty pro-immigration, but, uh, you know, we feel like we hit a wall when we talk to uh, people who are on the restrictionist right because they, in their minds, have divided the world into us versus them. Mm -hmm. And they think uh, that somehow hurting, you know, the them is going to, you know, make their lives better. Right. And uh, what's interesting about this is that these are also the same people very often, you know, who hate the government when it comes to government overreach and over-regulation <laughs> right. I don't want the government lives. doing this. They but... don't, yeah, right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so when it comes to regulation, regulating businesses or telling businesses, uh, you know, what to do and what not to do, these are the same paper people who are up in arms, except that uh, anti-immigrationism and this very aggressive interior enforcement, which is the latest buzzword, cannot succeed 
still it goes after the lives and liberties of the very people that these restrictionists want to protect. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so talk about the ways in which you're seeing American citizens be hurt by these policies. What If you're just a, sort of an average American family, you look around your world, in what way is uh, deporting people or uh, having tougher borders going to hurt you? So, you know, one of the contentions of this piece is that, um, you know, it is not minorities and Hispanics uh, or brown people who are being hurt by this uh, very aggressive immigration enforcement regime. It is also blue-blooded white people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And uh, the clearest example of that is when you look at the way businesses are now getting treated by uh, states like Arizona, which have very aggressive interior enforcement policies. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, Arizona became uh, sort of known, notorious, when it passed your papers, please policy, you know, which was essentially giving uh, the green light to any law enforcement official who had any reasonable suspicion of uh, somebody on the street that they were here illegally, they could stop them and demand their papers, right? right? Uh, And everybody thought, oh, this is awful because it's racial profiling and it'll affect Hispanic people. And it did. I mean, it's had a huge impact in Arizona. And in fact, when I was writing this feature, I spent, I went and spent like a whole week in Arizona, you know, talking to various people. And it's clearly affected the Latino community over there. On the other hand, what people forget is that before this law was passed in 2010, the Your Papers, Please law, Arizona had actually passed another law called the Employer Sanction Law. Uh, and uh, that was in 2007. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of that law was to go after Arizona businesses right. that were uh, hiring undocumented workers. So, uh, you know, one of the people I talked to was this guy, Brett Frimmel, who runs this restaurant, which is ironically called Uncle Sam's. <laughs> Uncle Sam. Perfect now, this, now uh, Brett Frimmel is a white uh, 42-year-old American. Uh, he is in Arizona what they call, uh, call a patriot, uh, a patriot, which means that he supports all the America First policies mm-hmm. that uh, Donald Trump supports, right? Uh, he was so popular with local Republicans that their monthly, the Republican, uh, Republican Club meeting would be held in in uh, in you know in Uncle Sam's, right. and uh, this was a po- and it serves this classic American fare, you know Caesar salad and burgers and pizzas <laughs> and that kind of stuff, and he became actually a victim of uh, Lawa, this uh, you know the employer sanctioned law when that notorious Arizona County Marisopa County mm-hmm. uh, Sheriff uh, Joe Arpaio. Uh, uh, you know, went after him. And Joe Arpaio created something called this criminal employment squad unit where he would have a SWAT team that would go and raid local businesses and go and, you know, hunt down uh, illegal immigrants. And then he would go after the businesses themselves. And, uh, you know, Arpaio uh, went after Frimmel so aggressively that Frimmel uh, actually, uh, you know, claims that his business uh, you know, he lost all his business overnight. Yeah. Uh, but what was one of the interesting things was it turned out the entire case against 
Frimmel was fabricated. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Arpaio arrested people, unemployment, uh, you know, undocumented workers from Frimmel's restaurant. And then he pretended they had given him certain testimony, which they had actually not given, right. and obtained a, uh, arrest warrants for Frimmel and his managing, uh, you know, managing uh, uh, partner yeah. and arrested both of them. Uh, so, you know, this was a regime in Arizona that not only, le uh, you know, went after business owners and particularly small business owners, but it actually went after their human resource people, right? I mean, because right. this uh, this uh, managing partner, um, you know, of Frimmel was this 50-plus-year-old woman, Lisa Norton, who was just doing the paperwork. Right. And Arpaio went after her. And that's what you're going to increasingly see, that anybody who's working for a company, for instance, that is suspected of hiring undocumented workers, can become criminally liable uh, you know, for, uh, you know, for undocumented workers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Sheikha Dalmia. She's a senior analyst at the Reason Foundation, writer for Reason in Magazine, we are talking about recent work she's done looking at the effect of restrictionist immigration policies, the crackdowns that we've seen from the Trump administration on American citizens. We often talk about the immigration issue in the context of the effect it will have on immigrants, undocumented immigrants, but they also have an effect on those of us who are, were born here, uh, people who live here uh, and run businesses or uh, exist in communities. Uh, what are the things that will change for our lives as Americans if we continue these policies? Uh, Sheikha, talk, uh, talk more about uh, th these kinds of effects in, in communities like Southeast Michigan, right? Uh, here, one of, the, one of the really interesting dynamics I think is uh, at play here is the number of immigrants that we have and the diversity of those immigrants politically, right? So the Chaldean population here, uh, which is a very large part of <clears throat> certain uh, communities in, in Detroit, tends to be pretty conservative. Yeah. And yet they've been victims of uh, the, this administration's uh, crackdown on, um, crackdown on Im immigration. Um, you know, does that sort of, does that sort of portend for political consequences, I guess, yeah. for Republicans? Right. I mean, uh, you know, the last immigration raid that they had over the summer, uh, they actually hauled people from the Iraqi Chaldean community in Dearborn who are now fighting deportation proceedings. Uh, you know, one of the uh, poorly understood aspect of these deportation raids is that they very often actually even... Uh, get in their dragnet American citizens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and the immigration, uh, you know, um, uh, the, the, the due process for in the immigration bureaucracy is so weak that you've actually had uh, lots of instances, uh, according to the calculations of uh, Jacqueline Stevens, who's a professor at Northwestern you know, University, uh, any given year you have 4,000 American citizens who are put into immigration detention, and some of them are actually even deported because they can't prove to the authorities that they're actually American that citizens. citizens yeah. And uh, so this whole weakening of due you know, due process because of this excessive zeal to 
remove people in an expeditious way is having a huge impact all over the country, including in southeast Michigan. Yeah. And a lot of Iraqi Chaldeans, you know, some of them are undocumented, but a lot of them, their status is unclear. Right. And it's going to be, you know, very interesting to see what happens over there. Uh, you know, but the other way in which Southeast Michigan is affected is that we are in what is called, actually all of Michigan is in something that uh, the ACLU calls the 100-mile constitution-free zone. Mm -hmm. This is the area that abuts the border and uh, where the Supreme Court has pretty much given uh, Border Patrol the same powers to stop and search people that it actually has at you know ports of entry. Uh -huh. and, uh, and what my research found was that in, uh, now since we are next to Canada, uh, we haven't yet been deeply affected by that. Uh, you know, but Border Patrol actually has the authority to set up roving border checkpoints anywhere it wants in southeast Michigan or mm -hmm. Michigan, where, you know, people would have to stop and they could be, you know, asked to produce uh, some uh, way of identifying themselves and proving their status. Border Patrol has the authority to do that. It doesn't do that yet here because, you know, Canada is... Uh, not a country that, uh, you know, we think uh, we need to stop people coming from for all the obvious reasons. Mm -hmm. Mexico is a different a different issue. One of the towns that I visited was a town that was an hour's drive south of Tucson called Arivaca, where Border Patrol has set... Now, Arivaca is, consists of 700 people, mostly white residents. Um, and these are retired cops. I mean, retired cops somehow find Arivaca a very <laughs> attractive destination because it's very beautiful. And the cost of living is extremely low over there. And so it's got, you know, Arivaca has got this weird kind of mix of white people, you know, some former hippies, some former cops, working class people who have settled over there. But Border Patrol has decided decided that it wants a checkpoint uh, out on the outskirts of Arivaca. Uh, Arivaca has nothing except a grocery store and a little cafe. Mm -hmm. Anytime anybody from Arivaca needs to go to the, take their children to the dentist or the schools of their children are, are all outside of Arivaca and they have to go through this border checkpoint. And the, the interesting dynamic has kind of emerged between border patrol authorities at this checkpoint and the people where, uh, you know, they know there's not much illegal traffic coming in from here because there hasn't right. in years and years. And yet, because there's a checkpoint over there, it's become a source of daily harassment. You know, Border Patrol will just decide they don't like somebody and they will stop them right. and search their cars. Uh, you know, if you, are dry, if you are leaving very early in the morning for the airport, they will think that's reasonable suspicion to uh, get you to open your trunk. And if you don't do that, they will make you wait for an hour before they get a canine unit to sniff your car. Right. So, uh, you know, white people in Aravaka <laughs> are up in arms and yeah. they are protesting this checkpoint, which, they, which was supposed to be temporary, but it's 10 years now and it's still there and it's, uh, you know, really affected their day daily lives sure. and how they live. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the common thing, I think, is, is disruption. And it's not, just, uh, it's not just cultural disruption. It's economic disruption. It's all kinds of disruption that, that this is causing that can't be, it can't be contained, right? If you're going to disrupt American life to this extent, it's going to have an effect 
on everybody who lives here. Right. I mean, and, uh, you know, uh, Americans think that uh, somehow the government has these magical powers that it can, you know, go into communities, know exactly who the undocumented workers are, and then surgically kind of excise them or, right. you know, kind of like do this targeted drone strikes. That's not how it works. Uh, immigration enforcement and interior enforcement is more like carpet bombing, mm-hmm, I said. Mm-hmm. You you know, uh, every Sweeps undocumented and... worker is over here because there is some American who's benefiting from their presence, right? Either they are employees or they are somebody's, uh, you know, family member or what have you. So some American is benefiting and you cannot go after them without also going after the people, essentially Americans, who are benefiting yeah. from the, their presence. So, you know, the lives of uh, and the liberties of undocumented workers and Americans are intimately intertwined. Right. You cannot you separate the two separate of them. That out. Yeah. And, you know, let me just point, I, uh, you know, a friend of mine, Chandran Kukutas, who is a philosophy professor at the London School of Economics, and he's been been investigating this issue and you know his contention is that you know if you really get serious about removing uh you know people undocumented workers essentially you have to grow the police state so much right. that you will start seeing the kind of things that you were seeing in South Africa during the apartheid regime it wasn't just the movements of black africa south africans that were affected white South Africans who wanted to do business with them, mm-hmm. who wanted to marry them. The regime, the apartheid regime was going after them too, yes. which is also what you saw during the Jim Crow era yes. in this country, right? And uh, so that's kind of like, you know, what you are uh, what you are veering towards. That's the paradigm you have to embrace and accept if you are going to have this kind of draconian interior enforcement. Yeah. Okay. Sheikha Dalmi, a senior analyst at the Reason Foundation writer, for Reason Magazine. Thanks, as always. For Thanks for having me, here. Stephen. Yeah. All right. That's going to do it for us today. I am Stephen Henderson. I'll be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow.